Father God, we come to you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, the word that you're going to bring us today uh, from the Bible, from your word. We thank you, Lord God, for what has happened already in Sunday school and the, and the fun that was there, the laughter, and also just the, the great amount of insight into your word. Father, we thank you uh, for this time together. We thank you for the worship team. Father, I pray that you would use my words to bring glory and honor to you in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this morning, we are going to end our time together in James. We have been in James for a number of months now, and we've seen James lay out what it looks like to live a very practical life of faith in a pagan world. A very practical life in a pagan world. And James has really helped us understand that faith is more than just intellectual assent. It's more than saying, I believe in God, uh, Jesus, please come and save me. Faith in Jesus Christ changes us into people that are completely different. We react differently. We view life differently. We live differently. And on a practical basis, James has gone through and showed us how this uh, works out in many, many areas of our lives. It's been hard at times looking in the mirror and evaluating the practical aspects of our faith. He says we need to rejoice in trials and tribulations. He's talked about what our speech is supposed to be and how it's supposed to look, how we look at others, how we're supposed to be uh, hearing and doing God's Word. He's also talked about how our faith must be accompanied by good works and how we must not love the world uh, more than we love God, how we must not be like the rest of the world, the rest of our pagan culture. And it is so hard for us not to get caught up into thinking like the world does around us. Over the last couple of weeks, we have, also, we have come to understand the importance of patience and prayer in our daily faith walk, specifically those two areas, patience and prayer. James encouraged his dispersed flock to be patient in life struggles, being Christ followers, because they know the Lord is coming. We're patient at our core because we understand that what we're going through right now is temporary. Most people today don't live much past their late 70s and 80s. That is such a small section of eternity. And we get so caught up in this 70 or 80 years here that we miss out on showing other people our faith because we're too, build, too busy building our own kingdoms here. Then, as he's talked about patience and waiting for the Lord, he helped them consider a prayer's place in a Christ follower's life while waiting for the Lord's return. So please turn with me to James chapter 5, verse 13. It's on page 1,291 of your pew Bible, the red Bible sitting in front of you. I would highly encourage you to everybody be in the Bible today because we're going to go to some longer passages that aren't going to be up on the screen. And so if you would uh, grab one of those pew Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, and turn to page 1,291. Let me read James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? On to verse 14. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the 
Prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And what we see there about prayer is that Christ followers who are struggling, I want you to fill in the, fill in the, the, the blank here. When Christ followers are struggling, what do they do? Pray. That is our natural default position. We go to God first. Also in chapter 5, verse 13, Christ followers who are cheerful, what do they do? They pray. It's part of their natural default position again. If I'm cheerful, I don't forget about God and just enjoy life. I look to the one who gave me the reason to be cheerful. Then as we move down into verse 14, we come to the part of James's letter that we see this person who cannot pray on his own who, uh, because they're so overwhelmed by life. They're so burdened down by life, by the persecution and suffering. Remember that the church was going through at that time and some of that could have been caused by their own sin and they need to call the elders and so when christ followers are suffering where they can't even pray for themselves they can't even really get out of bed what do they do they call the elders and what do the elders do they pray they pray and that's what we've looked at over the last few weeks and today we come to a part of James's letter that has become very dear to my heart because James finishes his section on prayer and actually finishes the book as a whole by turning his attention and our attention to the church body praying for each other. And this is just near and dear to my heart. If you spend very much time with me, you are going to find out very, very quickly how much I love the local body of Christ. I love it. I love you guys. I, and because I love the body of Christ, especially the local body of Christ, because God has brought us together here to do something for the kingdom of God, to build into each other's lives, to admonish and challenge each other, to rejoice with each other, to raise our children together, and to build marriages that bring honor and glory to God. That's why we're here. That's what we are. That's why I love the body of Christ. And you will constantly hear me encouraging church members to be deeply involved at Sardis Baptist Church, deeply involved in the ministries of Sardis, the people of Sardis, and even the problems of Sardis. We need to be deeply involved with each other. I am not ashamed to say that I believe God wants His people to see their local church body as being the most important or one of the most important social parts of their family's lives. I'm not ashamed to say that. It's not an add-on. It's not something we just put in the list. This body that God has called each of us to, I believe, takes priority over so much other stuff in our lives because we are a body. Your local church, your local church body is an enormously important part of your life. I believe this statement has solid biblical support. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, to that church that was struggling, he spent a lot of time correcting their views on the church body. Everybody turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, and you'll see that on page 1210 of the Pew Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. 
He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but there, that you be united in the same mind of the same judgment. He says, there should not be divisions here. You should not be divided. You're a body. And he goes on, turn with me to chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Think about what he just said. I cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for while you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh and behaving, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? A major issue that Paul was having with that church was they were not a body. There was strife. There were divisions. And he says, this is not what you should be. And he goes on to say that you're not even a being like Christ followers. You are living like the people of flesh, sinful flesh. That is a scathing rebuke because they weren't being one body. Chapter 11, verse 17 He's addressing the Lord's Supper. But in the following instruction, I do not commend you, because when you come together, is it not for the better of the is it not for the better but for the worse? For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that, that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. He's going, I believe there's factions. And he's talking about the Lord's Supper there. What was happening in the, in the Corinthian church is they were coming to the Lord's Supper, what was called a love feast, and it was supposed to be a, a mutual feast together. It was supposed to be a time where the body of Christ showed that they were a body of Christ, and they were being very, very divisive. Some were eating before others got there. Some were eating so much that there wasn't enough for those who got there late. He says, you guys are completely destroying what this whole love feast, this communion is about. You've destroyed it. You're only thinking about yourselves. And so we see that Paul is saying, this is not the way that your church should be. It should be unified. It should be thinking of each other. And he puts such an enormous amount of importance on the church body and what it's supposed to be like all the way through 1 Corinthians. In fact, how many of you here have heard of 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Okay. How many of you have heard it at your wedding? Did you know that even though it's true, that that's completely out of context? You see, where it says, love is this, and you can go back to 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, and all that list. You know what that is referencing to? You are to love your church body like that. And I've had people look at me and say, I'm supposed to love the people in my church like I'm supposed to love my wife because that's what I said at the wedding. And my answer to them is, absolutely. I love my church body like I love my wife with that agape love. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. You're not doing it, but this is how it should be. 
And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, we see him, uh, verse 19, he says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, which means they're saved, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, that's the church, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for, the, for God by the Spirit. You know what he's saying? We're a building, and we're interlocked together as a building. Every part and every piece of the body is needed. There is no lesser part of the body in the body of Christ. There is no lesser part of the building of this spiritual temple that we're being built into. Paul puts enormous, enormous importance on the church body. These passages are just a cursory look at how God wants each of us to see each other and relate to each other as the body of Christ. For us to do that, it has to be a priority. And then on what we just read, we add on the 30 or so one another's. You are to love one another, admonish one another, care for one another, bear with one another. I can go down the list. There's about 30 of those. How can you do that if you are not intimately involved in the church so much so that it's a priority of your life? You cannot live and do the things that God has requested us to do in service and in loving and in caring for one another if you do not have the church and the church body as one of the major priorities in your life. It cannot happen. It can't. If the church is just something I do when I have time and everything else takes a place, you are not walking where God wants you to walk. You're not. I know this goes against most everything our culture promotes. I know how hard it is to make the hard choices it takes to make your church body such a large part of your life. And I also know this doesn't mean the church body takes precedence 100% of the time. Other life events are also important, but we need to understand something. If we're just going to be honest, the family's connections to their local church body is definitely a major priority in the weekly life of the family, a major priority. And we have to understand that. We have to grasp that. The closest relationships for every member of a body of Christ, every member of a local church should be the church family, the closest members, the closest relationships, their closest friends should be in the church that they are local, that they are a part of. I didn't come to believe this just because it's laid out so clearly in God's Word. By God's grace, Kathy, the kids and I had a chance to experience this type of body life while serving in the military in Alaska. We'd only been married about nine months, still learning how to live with one another, not understanding really what family was about. We got there, and the churches we visited, you know, they were just kind of, they weren't like our old church, and so we kind of got out of the habit of going to church, and we would show up to church once in a while, well, I don't, you know, they don't do this, and they don't do, and we would go to another church, and over a number of months, we just really didn't attach to a body, but God had other plans. Through a mutual friend and a story that I won't have time to tell you right now, we were connected to a church, Grace Baptist Church. And we learned what body life was there. We learned how 
God wants the body of Christ. It doesn't mean that grace was a perfect church. But you know what situation caused us to do that? We didn't have anybody else. We're in Alaska in the 1980s. Monday night football, we didn't want to know about because Monday night football had to be set by tape and we didn't want to hear anything about it till Tuesday night when it would air in Alaska. Because we would always know what the score was through the radio and everything. All right? We'd, we didn't have access. We still had party lines on base. And if you don't know what that is, ask somebody who's older here what a party line is. All right? And, and so this is in the 80s. We were completely isolated from both of our families. We had nobody. We had each other, and we were still trying to figure each other out. But over the next number of years, we ended up being in Alaska over two different tours for 11 years. Over the next number of years, this church came alongside of us. And on Christmas, we spent with this body, of, a part of the body. At Thanksgiving, we would spend with this body of the Christ. And our lives were wrapped up in everything that the church did. It was our body. Now, we didn't know that. We didn't know we were learning this. It was the situation God put us in. But when you know what? When we came back to the lower 48, you know what hit us like a sledgehammer? Kathy still talks about this. It's not like this. There's not that dependence. Because we have families. Because we have our job. It's not the same. And to this day, we have many, many friends that built into our lives and God used to create us into the people we are right now. And even today, it has lasting impact on every member of my family because we grew for 11 years in a body of Christ that was really, really close to what God intended us to be. But you want to know something? Today, life isn't like that. Life isn't like that. Church families are not as closely knit together. Church becomes something I go to when something else is not going on. I don't put church in my schedule and schedule around church. I put everything else in the schedule first, and then if I have time, I go to church. That is not what we see biblically. By any stretch of the imagination. And that's why when we got to this part of James's letter, it just really touched my heart because he's going to say, we're praying, we've been talking about prayer, and now we're going to talk a little bit about how the congregation prays for one another. And let me be very, very clear. Your prayers will be shallow, your prayers will be quick, your prayers will not be as effective if you are not intimately tied into a church body. Because you won't know what's going on. All right, there's a number of you that when you walk in, I can tell if you had a good week or bad week. I can. Because I see it on your face. Why do I know that? Because I've been around you for 14 years. So as we think about this, James is going to go in and now and help us understand something about prayer in the body. So with this in mind, let's take a look at chapter 5, verse 16. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. That section about praying as a church body or praying for the church body opens up with the word, therefore. Therefore. In light of praying, in light of praying when you are struggling, in light of praying when you are cheerful, in light of having the elders pray over you when life is literally overwhelming you, he goes, in light of all this, confess your sins one to another. Verse 16. Confess your sins one to another. When we read this, the first question that comes to our minds is, what does James mean? I mean, that's, you know, confess your sins to one, one to another. Does he have in mind that the members of Sardis Baptist Church are once a month going to sit in a really big circle around the, in the auditorium here, and we're going to open up about all the sins that we all committed over the last month? Is that what he means? Are you hoping that's not what he means? <laughs> because some people take that, that that's where James is going. That we should sit around and regularly tell everybody what were the sins that we have committed. I don't believe this is what James had in mind. The therefore connects James's instruction back to those who have needed the elders to come and pray over them because they have been overwhelmed by life. They are depressed, suffering, discouraged. And James says that if a person in this condition... Sin may be the cause of this overburdened heart. And then he encourages them with this truth. God will forgive whatever sin may be causing you this distress. That's what we see, verse 15. And he says, and if he has committed sins, this is the person who the elders prayed over, he will be forgiven. Therefore, this person, if sin is an issue, confess your sins. Confess your sins. Confession, what is that? Confession means seeing sin in the same way God sees it. It's not confession that I did something wrong. It doesn't mean that I come to my wife when I know that I've done something wrong and I say, "Uh, Kathy, I'm sorry. Okay, please forgive me. I've confessed my sin to her. I I need to uh, see it from her point of view because a lot of times I don't, and that is a good thing. But if that's where it goes, if that's where it stops, we've got a problem because confession means I sinned against her. And I need to make sure that I see my sin from God's point of view, not just Kathy's. That's a much bigger issue, isn't it? I need to see God's point of view about my sin. So confession at its basis means that I see what I did, what I'm confessing from God's point of view. I see it through God's eyes that I have been disobedient and why it was diso- I was disobedient. And we have to understand that as we go to uh, Psalm chapter 51, we see that all of our sin, David helps us understand that all of our sin is that we sin against God first and foremost. If I sin against any one of you, I need to confess that. But first and foremost, who do I need to go to? God, because I sinned against Him more than I have actually sinned against you. So who are they to confess to? Look at James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Who is the one another? Who is James referring to? Well, I need you to take your Bibles and turn all the way back 
to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 18. Verse 18, of his own will, God, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of the truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. When we look at, looked at this verse many weeks ago, we came to see that this verse actually sets the stage for everything else that James writes. You see, James is being very, very specific here who he's writing to. is those who by God's word have been genuinely saved. So everything that follows, he is talking to those who are genuinely saved by the word of God. And you say, well, why would he say that to a church? Because isn't everybody in church saved? What is the answer to that? No, and we all know that. Every church, including Sardis, has people who are not genuinely saved sitting in it day in and day out, week in and week out. And when we're talking about praying for one another, James here, when we think, go back to verse 18, James is seeing us, helping us understand that the people we are to ask, the one another, the people we are to ask to pray for us, or that we're supposed to pray for, they need to be believers, Christ followers. They need to be believers and Christ followers. James is saying that whatever needs to be confessed should be to people who are in the body of Christ. As I said before, James isn't saying that all of us should gather around in a circle once a month and confess all the sins we've committed. That's never been the idea of confession in the Bible. In the context of this passage, sins that maybe have been committed by the person that uh, called the elders to pray for them, they go to this person, this person confesses to the elders the sin, if the sin, if there's sin in their lives, that there is causing them to feel overburdened and overwhelmed. And then the elders are going to be wise in their walk, in their spiritual lives, in leading, and they're going to tell the person what they have to do now. He's, that person is confessing. He's confessing to the leaders of the church first. That doesn't mean that you come and confess to me everything first. This is specifically for those who were just so overwhelmed that they called the elders there. They need the elders' help. That's the context of this. But they, what we need to understand is that the leaders can tell them to do this a couple of different ways. If this was a private sin, then that person just needs to confess. The elders would help lead them in that confession. And what happens to that? It's gone. Private sin. What's a private sin? Thought life? A sin that you committed that nobody else knows about? Didn't impact somebody else? Those are private sins. Do we all have private sins? If you say no, I'm going to use the age-old thing that we use here often. If you got mad on the freeway this week at somebody who got in your way, that's a private sin. You don't need to come to me and confess. That's a private sin. However... If the sin was public, it impacted somebody else. It hurt somebody else. Somebody else saw it. Then there needs to be confession, not only to God first, but to whom? To that person. There needs to be confession of that sin or of sins to that person. This is where the one and others come in. 
We can, or the idea of one another comes in. We cannot be the body of believers God has created us to be if sin comes between us. We can't. If there's sin between Glory and I, if there's sin between Chad and I, if I've sinned against them, is that going to drastically hinder our relationship and uh, unity in the body of Christ? Absolutely. You see, because Chad is not going to want to be around me because I sinned against him, and I'm mad at Chad, which is the reason why I sinned, because I was mad at him. And so now Chad sits over there, and if I was sitting over here, Chad doesn't want to be next to me, and I don't want to be next. What does that do to the body of Christ? And, and, and this is what James is saying. If there is that division, it needs to be confessed. It needs to be brought out in the open. And there needs to be forgiveness for that sin because these types of public sins, these types of sins divide the body of Christ, hinder the body of Christ from becoming what it should be. And then as we start thinking about this, look what he goes. I want you to to see how important Jesus says being right with other body members is. Take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, this is Jesus speaking, and there remember that your brother has something against you, what's he say? Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. God says, if you have division between you and a brother or sister in Christ, he says, stop your ministry to me. Don't give to me until you go and get reconciled. How important is body life in Christ and unity? Jesus himself said, you stop giving. Stop what you're doing. Stop ministry and you go get reconciled before you do anything else. Then come back and do ministry to me. Paul also helps us see how crucial it is to have right relationships. Uh, turn to with me again back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We've already been there once today, but turn back there. As we mentioned a few minutes ago that this is a passage on communion. If I were to ask you, what is communion about? What would you say? Just think. It's about the body of Christ. What else? His shed blood. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, they actually talk about the bread being the body of Christ. And the idea here is when we take communion, do you know what we're saying? When I come down here and we pass it out and uh, we all take it together, we are saying we are one in the body of Christ. We are one through the blood of Christ, and that symbolism is shown by the loaf of bread that we break and take together. We are one. Now, I want you to listen to what Paul says happens if we are not one. If we say, I am one with the body of Christ, and I have sin and division in my life, when I take communion, I'm lying. Do you understand that? Listen to what Paul says here. Starting in verse 7, 11, 7. Let's go to eleven seventeen. excuse me. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. 
Or in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, the other gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I not commend, should I commend you in this? No, I will not. Verse 23, for I received from you the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which shows unity, uh, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now listen to this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, they will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does it mean to discern the body? It means I am saying I am one with the body of Christ, but I have divisions in the body and I'm letting them exist. And Paul is saying, when you come to communion, you are saying, look at us, we are a body. We are one in Christ. But if we are taking communion and we have issues with one another and divisions with one another, then that communion becomes judgment to us. Paul here in 1 Corinthians 11 shows us how crucial it is to have right relationships within the church body. There must not be divisions. We see Jesus Christ talking about it. We see Paul talking about it. But I want you to go back to James, back to James, because I want you to notice something else that happens after the confession. James chapter 5. I want you to notice that confession is just part of what James says needs to be done. Confess is a command, and then when we read it, I want you to notice that praying together after the confession is a command. Verse 16, and therefore confess your sins to one another. We've already talked about that. And do what? What's it say? Pray for one another that you may be healed. Pray for one another. Now think about this. How hard is it to pray with somebody who has sinned against you? Even after they have asked your forgiveness. Does the bitterness exist sometimes still? Does the hurt exist sometimes? And James knows this. And James says, once you confess it, he goes, the next thing you do is you pray together for each other. How hard is it to pray with somebody you're still bitter against? How hard is it to pray for them if you're still bitter against them? Or if you're mad at them or harboring things against them even though you forgave them? And James doesn't leave that option. He says, you confess and you pray for one another. You pray. Sit down and get your eyes off yourself and the hurt and you pray for the one that hurt you. You pray for the one that sinned against you and they will pray for you. That's how close we are as a body. Everyone involved after the confession continues to pray for one another. There needs to be unity in the church. 
There needs to be a oneness of church of the church. There needs to be a sense of priority in the church and the sense of one, uh, the sense of these are my people and I want to be around them and I'm going to make sure in my schedule, I'm going to make sure in my life that I spend time with them. And by the way, let me make sure it's just not being here on Sunday mornings. Living life with each other is doing more than just coming to Sunday school or Sunday. It is having what Leslie likes to say, porch sitting. It is having people over your house. It is having people going out to eat with people. It is living life with them. I, we had a, a young man, his name was Brad Pepper, and he lived life with us so much, especially after his salvation, that all three of my kids to this day call him Uncle Brad because he was so much a part of our life. Uncle Brad. Uncle Brad was there when Nathan and Kelly were born. You should have seen the look on his face after Kelly was born. I said, you want to go in and see Kathy? Oh, I can't do that. I said, it's okay. Everything's done. She's okay. She can see you. And he came in, and he held our kids, and he took care of our kids, and he was part of our life. And our kids called him Uncle Brad. That's what is being talked about here. James has been so wise. And as we move on, what is the goal of this confession and prayer? What's the goal of this confession and prayer? That you may be healed. Healing. That is the goal of this confession and praying with one another. We must accept the reality that we live in a sinful world and that we still all struggle with sin in our daily Christian walk. If you're around me very long, guess what you're going to get to see me do? Sin. If I'm around you very long, what am I going to get to see you do? Sin. That's just part of life together when we live life together. And Satan wants disunity. Satan wants us to be focused on ourselves. Satan wants life to be hard and overwhelming. Because of this, we have to work very, very hard at keeping our unity. We have to work diligently to keep our unity. Satan doesn't want us to pray for one another because prayer is directly linked to what God does and what God wants. And when we think about this, the whole part of this prayer, again, is that we would have healing, and bring unity back to within the church. As I said, it's not easy to pray for one another because of our sinfulness. We have to work hard without confession and prayer, without both of them. Do you know what's missing? Healing. There will never be true healing. And congregational uh, life and confessing to one another and working through issues with one another and fighting for uh, unity and, and fighting against disunity. If we aren't healing in the process of this, if we are not doing what James says here, confessing to one another, and then we are going to have a bunch of small fractions of people in the same building calling themselves Sardis Baptist Church. James continues in the last part of verse 16, who is the righteous person? Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Has great power as it is working. The righteous person is the one who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Did you realize there are no righteous people on this planet without that? He's not talking about extra righteous people here. He's not talking about pastors and elders being extra righteous. He goes, the righteous person, the righteous man or the righteous woman. If you have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, you are part of being a righteous person. Amen? God sees you as being righteous in His eyes. And the prayer and confession that James wants here is only effective when those who are praying are believers in Jesus Christ. Christ followers who have been righteous through their faith in Jesus Christ. A desire to live righteously a desire to live like a righteous person works hard to keep sin out of our lives. A genuinely saved person is not going to live an unrighteous life. They will have unrighteous events, but what are they going to do? Confess. Get right with God. But they cannot just live a life of unrighteousness. And we understand that Sin hinders prayer. Sin hinders prayer. Look at what it says. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the psalmist says, what's, that? what's it say? The Lord would not have listened. If there's unrighteousness in your life, if there's unconfessed sin in your life, if there's a vision between you and somebody else in the body of Christ, what does that do to your prayer life? Iniquity in my heart, sin in my heart. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, if one does not obey the law, if, if they will not listen to God's word, even his prayer is what? An abomination. Are those heavy words? How many times do you know that you have sin in your life or you have sinned against somebody in the church and you just let it go? You just wait for time to cover over it no intent on confession no intent on making it right what does God say but if your iniquities we see in Isaiah have made a separation but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face so that from you so that he does not hear you say well pastor Mark those are all passages from the Old Testament John 9 31 we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Division, disunity, sin, unconfessed sin hinders our prayers. When we come to God, what does God want to hear from us when we have sin in our lives? Lord God, I am a sinner, I have sinned against you. Is he listening then? Absolutely. Is he ready and willing to forgive? Absolutely. But if we just ignore the sin in our lives, that hinders our prayer. That hinders our prayers. 
Why is it so important that a righteous person is part of the prayer process? Look at the last part of verse 16. The prayer of the righteous person has what? Great power. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful. A prayer of a person who has been saved by Jesus Christ is a powerful prayer. To encourage both the elders and others in the church body to this kind of prayer for those in spiritual weakness, James reminds them that the prayers of the righteous are powerful. The prayers of a righteous person is effective and can accomplish much. The energetic prayers of a righteous person are a potent force to call down the power of God and restore the weak, those who have been burdened, those who cannot um, fend for themselves, those who are spiritually weak. And that's what he's saying. When we come together in prayer, as a congregation, when we're praying, when the elders are praying over those folks, when we're praying for each other, those prayers are active and work and are very, very powerful. You say, how powerful? How powerful are our prayers? It refers us to Elijah. Look at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. He says, that's how powerful our prayers are. He says here, Elijah's prayer life was so powerful because he was in God's will. He asked, and if you go back, remember I asked you all to read Elijah? because we don't have time to go back to it today. I asked you to read the, the, when Elijah actually prayed for this event. And what we find out is uh, through the life of Elijah, Elijah was a major prophet. He was a major prophet. But one of the really interesting things that we find in our passage this morning, it says here, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What's he mean by that? He is human like us. Did Elijah sin? Yeah. Did Elijah struggle with the temptations that we have as humans? Yes. We know that Elijah was hungry. We know that Elijah was a, uh, was a, 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 a warrior, a prayer warrior, when he uh, faced all 800 Baal worshipers. But we also know that he fled from one woman, Jezebel, like on the next page. Elijah was just like us. He was a man of the same nature as us. And you know what James's point is? Your prayers can be as powerful as what Elijah's were. How many of you really begin to, have begun to understand how powerful your prayers are in light of that? Your prayers are as powerful as Elijah's were, or can be, or are as righteous people. Does that encourage you? That your prayers are as powerful as Elijah's, that when you come before God, he listens. When you come before God, he answers. Sometimes it's no, sometimes it's yes. Your prayers make differences in people's lives. They're powerful like Elijah's. It is possible for us to pray like Elijah and for God to have wonderful things and do wonderful things because of our prayers as righteous people. What encouragement it is for the church body that when we come before God together in unity, even after sin has had to be dealt with, He will hear us and He will heal, 
the body. We never want to let division and disunity and bitterness and anger exist for any length of time in this body. And the only way to eradicate that is to confess those sins and pray to, with each other and to hold each other, each other accountable. As I said before, this is so counterculture today and that is why I think that sometimes our prayers aren't as powerful as they could be because we harbor sin in our lives. We harbor unconfessed sin in our lives. We harbor sins in our lives. We harbor sins that we cherish. You go, what is the sin that we cherish? You know it's wrong. Okay? You know it's wrong. You absolutely know it's wrong. Every time you do it, you confess that sin. But what do you always do? Go back and do that sin again and again and again because you understand that it's just a weakness I have and so, you know, God will forgive me. And I've heard that in counseling sessions so many times. I know I'm not supposed to do it. I ask for forgiveness and I know that every time I do it, God will forgive me. That's a cherished sin. It's not a sin that you want to run from. It's not a sin that you want to get away from. It's not a sin that you want to see eradicated in your life. And it's those types of sins that send people, okay, into places they don't need to go and cause very, very drastic life situations in their life. And these are the people that James was talking about that are in bed, burdened down, overwhelmed, and they cannot do it on their own. I want you to understand something else, that God is the source of the power of our prayers, not our prayers. It is not power that comes from within us by our own strength. It is because we have the Holy Spirit within us. It is the power of God working through us. So let me ask you to look in the mirror for a second here. How's your prayer life within the body of Christ today? How's your prayer life toward those who have sinned against you in the body of Christ? Are you seeking unity no matter what has happened through your prayers? Or do you still find yourself being standoffish from those who have sinned against you? Has there been healing with every relationship you had within the in the church? Is there anybody in this church body that you know there's, not, there's disunity with on whatever level that is? And what we've seen today is we need to confess. We need to pray together. We need to look for the healing that comes through confession and praying. We don't have time to completely finish this. And what I really enjoy about James's final two verses of closing here is that he still is talking about the body of Christ. He closes talking about the body of Christ in prayer, and he closes by saying, pursue those who are straying from the path. Look at verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let them, him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Those who have lost their way are also the sick ones of the church family. They have wandered away Wandering ones need to be brought back to the fold. And James is referring here to two groups because we can look at this from two separate ways and there is a discussion on how this verse uh, should be taken. There is the way that says that 
we are, the people that we are searching for, pursuing, are Christ, true Christ followers, people who have genuine faith. And they have wandered off the path so far that they are lost, they can't get their way back. And we as a church are supposed to search for that unity and search for that uh, person uh, and bring them back and encourage them to come back. And if they do come back, and if they do uh, come back and confess their sins and get right with God and start growing again, it says that we have saved that person. Amen? However, there's also the discussion is what does it mean by they will save his soul? Okay, can that mean you'll save a person's soul who has wandered? Yes, because are there, does their soul need healing and, and, and fixing? Yes. But it also could mean, the way it's written, that the person was never a Christ follower in the first place. It could mean either one of those, and I think that it's both. Because if we pursue a person and they come back and they don't want to be off that path, they want to continue living that life, then what do we need to do? We need to reach out to them. We need to tell them the gospel again. We need to help them understand that they cannot live that life and that their choosing to stay in that life is, does not bring assurance of their salvation. And we reach out to them and we love them and we, we care for them. But if they continue to walk on that life, we know in other portions of the scripture that it says then we need to purify the church and that's when we allow God to deal with them outside of the church. But the issue here is, what is our hearts? What is your heart when somebody is straying from the church body? How many people actually pursue somebody who is contemplating leaving or who has lost their way in sin in the church? How many of us just want the pastors and the leaders of the church to deal with it? James doesn't leave that option. Again, he says... My brothers, who's he talking to? The whole church. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, how many people need to go after him? After her? A number. We don't want them to be off the path. And so as we close, James, with these things in mind, I hope and pray that it hasn't been too heavy over the last few months because it's been difficult, hasn't it? When you have to look at our practical faith and how that works out in our lives. I hope and pray that each of us here understands that our faith is lived out in the world in front of people in a practical manner. It is not just a private affair. It's not just a private affair. There is no such thing as a private affair. Christian life. It doesn't happen. As soon as something becomes private, it means you're trying to hide it for one reason or the other. And James says, uh -uh, our lives are lived out in the open. Our lives are lived out in front of each other. Our lives are lived out where we're looking at these things. We're looking at how we speak and how we handle trials and tribulations, how we treat each other and how we show preference or don't show preference. All these things that we've learned over the last few months, God says, James says, this is what it looks like to live practically in your faith.